This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, slight improvements in attendance at New Orleans public schools has prompted district officials to suspend collecting attendance data from charter schools. A federally funded grant program meant to boost traffic enforcement may be in violation of state law. And over a dozen people who recently had their convictions based on non-unanimous jury verdicts vacated by Orleans Parish DA Jason Williams' office last month accepted plea deals to lesser charges at a court hearing this week. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel is also here. Hi, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is with us. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up, congratulations on getting your vaccine, and I know you're a little under the weather, so we will uh, be brief with you if necessary. How are you feeling? I'm okay. Happy to have the vaccine, but yep, definitely still uh, recovering a little bit. Yeah, good. Okay. So uh, during the pandemic, attendance was a little spotty for kids around the New Orleans school system. It has rebounded a little bit, and it's prompted some district officials to call for the dropping of attendance data collecting at charter schools. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, so this was a this is actually a unique uh, year, obviously, but not the pandemic, which I think uh, caused some concern for worry about attendance. But because of that, this was the first year the district ever collected attendance data from charter schools at all. So district doesn't directly run these schools, so it had not had access to attendance data on a weekly or daily basis, um, which they started collecting last fall in light of um, virtual schooling and concerns that students weren't attending school. So, you know, we've made it through the year, they were collecting attendance data on a weekly basis and then a bi-weekly basis. And, and we know that some school leaders felt that, you know, this was an additional burden of something that they shouldn't be spending time on, uh, not attendance at their schools, but, you know, doing, filling these reports to the district. And so now we've seen a slight improvement in attendance data. Uh, we're averaging about 86% daily attendance uh, throughout the district. And it's still below, you know, non-pandemic years. Um, but that has prompted the district to say, you know, okay, we're going to suspend collection for this year. We'll take one final report at the end of the year, but, you know, we're going to turn our focus to, to future years. You said 86% attendance? Yes. And in a typical year, it's, you know, 90, 91, 92%. Okay. Okay. More than a third of the students in the district are habitually absent. We've talked about that, but remind us what that means. Right. And so I think this is actually, uh, this is a more concerning number to me. And, and uh, two things real quick, what I'm going to clarify is, in the past, what we've talked about is chronically absent students. And those were students who had 10 or more absences, whether they were excused or unexcused. Now the district has pivoted to only collect data for habitually absent students. And that's 10 or more absences that are all unexcused. So we see that there are 15,000 students in the district who are habitually absent, and that's that's basically one-third of the enrollment, the enrolled students in the city. And I think also where we, obviously we have concern for these 15,000 students, but if we're not talking about chronically absent students, the students who are, have also missed with excused absences, uh, we're talking a lot about a lot more kids if we open back up to that other category as well. Can I ask something? So 
it seems to me, it just seems that with, with a lot of kids still doing virtual, with the pandemic still going, with this overall just being an unusual, continuing to be an unusual year, I, I understand that this is a kind of a pain for the, the charter leaders to, to collect this data and, and give it to the district, but um, if they're still concerned about chronic absenteeism, wouldn't, wouldn't continuing to collect the daily attendance data be useful as, as a way to sort of, you know, head off chronic absenteeism when you start to see patterns in daily attendance data? It just, it just seems a strange time to, to cut this off to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree that it's a strange time, and especially, you know, presuming that people are pretty, uh, A, they have a system to do it now, right, because they've been required to do it all year. And, you know, you think that they'd have it pretty ingrained. So I agree. It seems like a strange time. Um, I'm, I think possibly maybe things like standardized testing coming up and, you know, graduations and school starting to drop off at different points in the year, you know, for, you know, seniors ending their years early and stuff like that. Mm. I think that might have something to do with it. But mm-hmm. so I there- would agree with you. I see no reason to stop collecting it now. Up other than the fact that perhaps that the district doesn't actually intervene in these, when it sees low attendance rates at all, that's all to the school. So maybe this really is just the district wanting one less thing on its plate. Right, right. So, so do they not intervene? Is that, is that an official policy that, they're, that that's something that they're not involved with? I don't think it's, well, I think it's just literally written into state law, right? That's, I, just, oh, okay. is that? that's, in, the, that's in Act 91, okay. I think it's in the in charter law, like original charter law. Okay, got it. So in this in um, this announcement, they didn't uh, they didn't justify it for any particular reason. They're just saying it historically we've never done it, so we're going to stop doing it again. In the announcement, they they told school leaders that they had uh, that they were seeing improvements. Are they giving any hints as to what graduations might look like this year? Uh, they have not thus far, but I, I think there might be similar to next or to, to last year's, um, you know, socially distant, uh, mm. walking through, not having tons of friends and family there. Although I do believe, and Charles, you probably know this, uh, they're raising the cap on activities or group gatherings, right, to to two fifty. Uh, yeah, yeah, they have raised uh, they they have raised the cap. I can't I can't remember what the new cap is, but it I believe that was part of the the latest round of uh, relaxing restrictions. So yeah, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something this year in graduations that was you know a little bit more traditional than the than the drive through graduations that we saw last school year. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and if you talk about them like. You know, I went to a large university and they divided into six ceremonies. So, you know, maybe you're going to see something like that so they can get friends and family in there while staying under this, you know, uh, 250 cap. Yeah. 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 What, what I'm also curious about, uh, you sort of brought this up earlier talking about attendance uh, and, and standardized tests. Have you heard anything yet with standardized tests coming up about how they're going to handle getting all those kids into, into testing in person? I've talked a little bit, uh, I've talked to a few uh, schools about it, and I know for some schools, the tricky thing is that you still have students who are virtual, so you want to bring those kids in on days that are not uh, when the other in-person students are there. Mm -hmm. So I know one school, Encore Academy, they have a Monday through, anyone who's in-person right now is there Monday through Thursday. Okay. That leaves Fridays open for them to bring in the virtual students for Mm -hmm. standardized testing, Um, but I don't know 
I don't know what schools that don't have a schedule like that are going to do if they're going to, you know, try weekends or they're going to have in-person kids be virtual on the day when they have the virtual kids come in for testing. It's definitely a very tricky thing for them to work out. Right. Um, and, and yeah, the, 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 the evening, they, you know, they, they sort of floated out the idea of evenings and weekends. I can't, uh, I can imagine that there are probably some, some parents and certainly some students who wouldn't be too thrilled about that. Right. Yep. That, no, and having to, a lot ad- to coordinate and it's not just one day of testing, right? It's like, it's probably four days of testing. Exactly. And if they have to have multiple days of the same test, whereas they were once doing it not just the multiple day tests, but having to administer a multiple day test multiple times to different cohorts is going to be really onerous on the on the staff. Right, and that, that actually brings up a question which I hadn't really gotten into at all about test security because normally these tests are only allowed to be administered once. Right. So that'll be something to pay attention to in the future. <laughs> right, the proctors and whatnot. Okay, thanks, Marta. I hope you feel better. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Nick, in criminal justice, there is a, um, a grant that was given to the New Orleans Police Department that... Um, is a, it's meant to enhance traffic enforcement, meant to boost traffic enforcement, but it sounds like it could be in contravention or in violation of state law. And there's some tricky wording in here. Explain what's going on. Yeah, there's some tricky wording. Um, so this grant is a, it's a, a pastor federal grant. It, it comes originally from the National Highway Transit Safety Administration, the federal organization. And they give a, a pool of money to the Louisiana Highway Safety Commission, who then uh, passes this money out in, in grants to local law enforcement agencies. And the, the grants are specifically for um, paying overtime um, law enforcement officers to uh, enforce uh, uh, various traffic laws. So I got a copy of, of this grant, uh, the one that specifically goes to the New Orleans Police Department. And one portion of the grants um, that is under performance targets suggests that the agencies um, make one arrest for every eight hours of overtime worked for these officers. And what that essentially looks like is, is an arrest quota. And arrest quotas are, are illegal in Louisiana. Um, it's specifically illegal for a law enforcement agency to, you know, evaluate or promote or, or really take into account the number of arrests an officer makes um, in any given time. Uh, so that so that was um, interesting to me and, and, and kind of, uh, 
I started calling around to, to various lawyers and, and to the Louisiana Highway Safety Commission to, to see what they had to say. Right. They said, um, I, I thought it was so funny in your story because you write that um, the language itself suggests or it states, explicitly states that this is the target. But then the next paragraph, or maybe it's not the next paragraph, but it says something like, well, but that doesn't mean it's a quota. So Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It, it, it appears to set up a quota and then immediately says we are not declaring this a quota, which, you know, um, reads like they are, they are understanding that, that uh, <laughs> this, this could potentially be a problem. Right. There's nothing in the grant that says um, a, a, a performance-based, um, that they could withdraw the grant if the performance targets are not met. What the Louisiana Highway Safety Commission told me was that they would not withdraw a grant just because these performance, this particular performance expectation uh, wasn't met. What the grant says, it, and the, the wording is a little bit uh, uh, tricky, is that that the law enforcement agents are considered to be in compliance with, with performance expectations as long as agencies demonstrate some completion of enforcement activities. Or some some wording to that to that extent. Um, so they are saying that that these specific ratios are not requirements. That as long as a law enforcement agency is kind of demonstrating some some range of completing completing overtime traffic enforcement and, and can show that, then then they'd be in compliance. But it's hard to really gauge what exactly that means. Hmm. Well, well, and and the other thing is is you know whether or not they pull the grant. Um, whether or not reaching these targets makes you more or less likely to to get a new grant in the next round. We have seen some evidence in the past. We, we can't say this about the New Orleans Police Department, just to be very clear. We don't, I'm not saying that we've seen any that this is the case here. But we have seen in, in the past that when this got down to the department level, that at least one department in the state a few years ago was treating a similar grant or the same grant um, as an actual quota, is, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. The, um, the news station reported, you know, in 2019 that, that the Gonzalez Police Department actually issued a, <laughs> issued a memo after receiving the grant, basically directing their officers to make this number of arrests in this number of hours and issue a certain number of citations in a certain number of hours, um, which is, you know, explicitly a quota. It's, it's hard to, they said it wasn't, but... It's hard to argue how that, how that isn't, you know, and I, and I would say that regardless of whether or not they consider this a requirement, regardless of what, how they are evaluating these different agencies, the fact that the ratio is in the grants, you know, puts it in the minds of, of the agencies and ultimately the officers that this is some sort of an expectation. Um, so regardless of whatever the, the actual mechanism is, I, I, you know, the fact is that the, that the, that this ratio kind of exists in in the um, in the in the minds of, of the law enforcement agencies, and I think that that is part of the problem. And and whether or not it, it explicitly violates state law, it certainly goes kind of against the spirit of it. Um, state law, you know, doesn't allow for for formal or informal quotas. Um, you know, the the point is to kind of I think explicitly get rid of any type of, of um, expectations that an officer would be making a certain number of arrests. 
And that's not your assessment. I mean, you talked to a couple lawyers about this, including uh, Rafael Goyaneci, who's, he, you know, he's uh, an ex-prosecutor, uh, fairly, fairly pro-law enforcement, and they said it looked like it was a quota to them as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Goyaneci basically said, you know, if you have to say it's not a quota, uh, <laughs> there's a good chance that someone's going to be interpreting it as a quota. Um, and, yeah, l likewise, you know, Bruce Hamilton at, at the ACLU, um, said he, it looked like quote to him and, and, and likely violated state law. So this, um, it seems like it's an instance which comes up now and again of one government agency having to police another government agency, for lack of a better word, police. Um, if it is, in fact, a violation, who is going to be accountable for that? That's a good question. I mean, I think that what would likely happen is, is uh, someone would need to file a lawsuit. Um, and I don't have any evidence that that, that is necessarily going to um, right. take place. I will say it, do, it does look like at some point, and I'm not sure if this happened, you know, when the, the news of the Gonzalez Police Department's memo came out. But it looks like that, that, that the disclaimer in the, in the grant saying, you know, this is not a quota, um, came later so at some point they up they they updated the grant to include that and i think sort maybe thought that 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 would be the end of it that with this new language you know no one could argue that, that it's a quota because they say it's not a quota so I, th I think we'll see and and we'll see whether or not you know in in uh subsequent years whether they keep including this ratio um i know it, it's something i'm interested in so. mm -hmm. Okay. Do you know? Do you know how many years, for example, the, the New Orleans Police Department has been getting this this grant? No, I'm not sure actually. Okay. In the past, when you've seen similar, or, or well, not exactly similar, but when you've seen sort of systems that people have interpreted as being quotas, what's made them go away has been has been kind of public pressure. Um, you know, for years, um, origi originating in New York City, the uh, police departments were using, uh, you know, weekly evaluation or a data database evaluation tools called ComStat. Um, that you know, and then they would they would meet with uh, with with uh, with uh, district or precinct leaders to discuss their ComStat stats, which was basically a, a, a collection of how much crime is happening in your in your precinct and and how many arrests are you making because of it. And they wanted to see you know week over week decreases in crime and week over week um, growth in police activity responding to crime, meaning arrests. Um, and over time. You know, at first, this was you know this sort of thing was was seen as a uh, you know was seen as a, a good data based approach to policing. After after a while, uh, a lot of people started to think it, it looked a lot more like police departments were setting or se setting a, a sort of soft quota for themselves. Yep. You know, following that, a lot of police departments, including I believe the New York New Orleans Police Department, um, abandoned the Comstat model in favor of you know in favor of more qualitative. Um, evaluations. They do something now called the MAX meetings in New Orleans. I forget what that stands for. Okay. Um, moving on to the movements to a little of the criminal justice reform that DA Jason Williams has instituted since taking office. What happened at the hearing? These were, you know, 13 people who had had their convictions vacated uh, late last month. Um, 
and these were people who had been convicted on, on non-unanimous jury verdicts. Um, so at the hearing, these people who had, who had had their convictions vacated took new plea deals and, and got resentenced. And many of them will now get out of prison. They were sentenced to uh, time served. So that the amount of time they'd already been in prison um, was either more than or, or equal to the, the sentences that they received on, on Wednesday. Okay. You have some a uh, couple of heartbreaking stories. It was a really remarkable hearing. I mean, many of these guys thought that they were going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Um, they'd been, you know, sentenced to, to life. And many of them are getting uh, up in age. Lots of these defendants' families were, were on this. It was, it was a virtual hearing, so it was on Zoom. Um, a lot, lots of their families were on this call. Uh, so one by one, they were, go- they were going through and getting uh, new sentences and hearing that they were going to be getting out of prison. So a number of them uh, testified and, you know, apologized to their families and, uh, you know, kind of described their, their uh, transformations, um, you know, during their, during their times in prison and, and um, kind of the way, ways that they'd grown and the difficulties. And it was very, very emotional and very intense. And have this happen sort of you know 13 times in a, in a single hearing this is something that, that generally happens you know pretty infrequently with that someone who expects to to spend you know decades or or uh their whole life in prison gets gets the opportunity of freedom is is, is a fairly rare thing um so this was a pretty unique hearing and then there are also a handful of of victims who who sent their you know, messages through the district attorney's office, and then one who actually uh, testified at the hearing and gave sort of a whole another perspective on, on the difficulties of, of this process. And some basically just said, we'd like to be left alone if once you're out. And then the one man who actually testified at this hearing was, was a man named Eric Bielman. He had been shot in 2006 and gave a very, very impassioned testimony about the difficulties of that and he was very frustrated with the district attorney's office that he had not been contacted. The interesting thing about him was he was very angry at the DA's office, I can see in your story, that, that they didn't contact him before they made the decision to vacate. But they did contact him apparently after that decision was made and he had an opportunity to, even though he was angry, he had an opportunity to talk to the to the gentleman, his assailant. And uh, he ended up for all his anger at the DA's office in these decisions, he ended up saying that he was in favor of of him taking a plea deal and going free, right? Yeah, I mean, it was this very weird uh, uh, sort of, it seemed to me, contradictory emotions where he was furious at the DA's office for the way they had gone about this, but sort of came to this place of forgiveness for his assailant that, you know, it seems to me would, would not have come along if, this decision wasn't made to, to revisit all these um, non-unanimous jury convictions. Um, yeah, it, it was really interesting. You know, I, I think this whole this whole process is going to bring up a lot of reactions and varying um, emotions. I'll also mention. I think I've mentioned this in our previous uh, when we've gone over this previously in the podcast. But just just one more plug that uh, that the DA's office, as as we've said before, in this case, th- this is part of their uh, their their 
a larger project going through non-unanimous jury verdicts that occurred in Orleans Parish. And uh, they began it with the Section G of Criminal District Court. That, according to the people involved, that had a lot to do with uh, a longtime judge in, in Section G, Frank Shea, that Nick wrote a, a series about last year, and we have uh, we also have a podcast that accompanies it. What, can, can you tell us just a little bit about Frank Shea and, and why his legacy uh, led to them beginning beginning with his former courtroom? Yeah, so uh, Shea, was, Shea was on the bench for um, over 30 years in New Orleans, and his um, sort of claim to fame was that he... he wanted to get his jury trials done as quickly as possible. So often trials, you know, lasted less than a day, sometimes a matter of hours. Um, at, at one point, he conducted six trials in a single day. And, and there, there were various ways in which he, he sort of got, got the court to move along that quickly. He, he you know, was aggressively harsh in, in, in getting lawyers to get to the point. Um, he sometimes just wouldn't let lawyers who presented a strong defense practice in his courtroom. So, so what you saw, and and this came up uh, at the hearing on Wednesday, is that a lot of these defendants, you know, had had trials that that were really perfunctory. Um, you know, lasted lasted only a few hours. Um, a few of them had a public defender who was assigned to Shea's section, who, who I've written about a bit, and you know, was sort of a famously disinterested. Uh, lawyer, he, I think, uh, an appellate court at one point called him grossly incompetent. So, so these are kind of the trials that, that some of these guys had, and you can imagine that that even even with these sort of you know quick proceedings with with no real defense put up, they still had non-unanimous verdicts. Um, there was still at least one juror who voted to acquit them, um, and it makes you wonder, you know, if they if they had had a different process, if they had had. Um, you know, maybe a lawyer who was able to spend more time on their case. It seems, you know, not not impossible, if if not likely, that they may have another juror or another two jurors that they weren't guilty. Or at least, or, or at least, you know, they 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 yeah, they would have been able to convince more people to to vote for acquittal, and they would have gotten a, a mistrial and maybe a plea plea deal on a lesser crime to begin with. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so all of, all of that stuff is kind of kind of in the in the in the air on on Wednesday when this hearing is taking place. Uh, you mentioned in one in your piece one case. Uh, it sounded like this guy, the um, the guy whose whose conviction was vacated. The victim recanted and s- said that he had made the whole thing up because he didn't want to cop to uh, a drug problem to his dad or something that suggested to me that that guy was erroneously convicted completely and had served a couple decades in prison yes yeah that's exactly right okay how many of those are there or are these more is it more common that it's that it's someone who committed maybe a lesser crime and tell me what the breakdown do you think is well the short answer is we just don't have any idea. Um, you know, advocates argued that you know, and I, you know, there's a good good argument to be made that that people with non-unanimous jury convictions are more likely to be wrongfully convicted because the fact that a juror or two jurors 
voted for their acquittal means that the, the evidence was weaker than than it would have needed to be if there was a, a unanimous uh, the, the, if a unanimous verdict was required. Um, so it's not clear. What we do know is with these 22 cases, the DA's office, Civil Rights Division, reviewed all of these cases and basically identified five of them that they were going to look at for more serious civil rights violations or actual innocence. Mm. So these were cases they, they looked at and thought, you know, this really looks like this person could have been wrongfully convicted. What's interesting about the case that you mentioned where this victim recanted is that was not in one of the one of the cases that, that oh. they were going to look at. Um, so he was actually planning on taking a plea deal. And I think was, you know, I think had made that decision that he was, he, you know, I think had maintained his innocence, but was ready to, was ready to get out and oh. um, was going to take it. And then, yeah, the, the victim in the case came forward and, and uh, or, you know, ostensible victim um, came forward and, and, and recanted and he was exonerated, you know, but in terms of in terms of, of witnesses recanting and and you know how often things like that happen, which I think you were sort of asking earlier, I mean, I I can say I it would be impossible to do a, 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 an analysis on the whole universe of Orleans Parish cases, especially since uh, that is a courthouse that runs entirely on paper. But I've read a lot of criminal case files in. Uh, over the course of my career, and I, I you know, I, I wouldn't say it's based on my sample. I can't say that it's common, but I have seen a lot of it. Now, again, my sample is going to be skewed because there's a reason I'm reading a criminal case file to begin with. It's interesting in some way. Um, it's you know newsworthy in some way. So, so I there are obviously far more ca- cases outside of my uh, outside of my uh, skewed sample that that isn't happening. But I, I have seen it quite a bit. Yeah, but and outside, I mean, outside of your analysis, the National Registry of Exonerations has put New Orleans as, as the you know highest rate of wrongful convictions. Yeah. Like, for for um, yeah. yeah, but I, in my case, I'm talking about about you know, people who hadn't been exonerated, people who w- where witnesses recanted um, and they were still convicted and um, and had not yet been exonerated. So, it, it, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a fair amount of this in this. Right. And the backdrop of all of it is the, is the case that we still are waiting to hear, we assume, this summer, the decision that will come down from the U.S. Supreme Court. Charles, remind us of that case that they heard. Uh, non-unanimous juries were uh, were legal in the state of Louisiana for 120 years, uh, beginning in 1898 through the end of 2018. In 2018, voters across the state voted on a constitutional amendment to change the state constitution to require unanimous verdicts. Um, however, that that constitutional amendment uh, that we voted that we voted on only applied to future cases so crimes cases that were initiated on on or after january 1st 2019 so that left thousands i'm not sure of people whose whose cases were decided on non-unanimous jury verdicts um, who were unaffected by that constitutional change in the state constitution following that um there was a decision uh that came down last year from the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in, a, in a, a case called Ramos v. v. Louisiana. The Supreme Court found that non-unanimous jury verdicts were unconstitutional, 
but they tailored this decision somewhat narrowly and it only ended up applying to uh, to jury verdicts wherein the defendant had not yet exhausted all of their appeals. Mm-hmm. So that decision covered a larger group than, than the constitutional amendment, but it still left... I believe some it, it was it, Nick wrote about this. It was somewhere in the in the neighborhood of around eighteen hundred people who were still in prison and whose non unanimous jury verdicts were still considered valid. Now the U.S. There's a pending case uh, that was argued at the end of last year before the U.S. Supreme Court, basically on whether to extend the Ramos decision to include all cases, including cases where the defendants have exhausted their appeals um, unsuccessfully. Those are the cases right now that we're talking about in this, in this, uh, in this initiative that Jason Williams is undertaking. Right. He's, he, he's, he's, he already has to review the cases where, um, where, they haven't review, where, where they haven't exhausted their appeals because the U.S. Supreme Court is told, has said that they do have to. Um, what he's taken upon himself is to take a look at those cases where they have exhausted their appeals. He said he's not waiting for the Supreme Court on this. He's preempting the, that yeah. decision. And whether, well, if they come down and, and it, if it comes down in favor of, of actions like his, all DAs on every, in every parish across this state are going to be doing this kind of work that his office yeah, is doing right now. here and in Oregon, uh-huh. because that was the other state that allowed non-unanimous juries. Right. It's fascinating. Okay, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krestel, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.